You are now listening to Industry Insights with Pulse Community, your go-to for key tips and advice in finance, entertainment, health, marketing and tech. In each episode, our 16 industry leaders and experts invite you to be part of the conversation, sharing the wealth of experience and knowledge to bring you insightful tips for your business and career. On the fourth episode of Industry Insights, we discuss all things finance with Gabrielle Coker, an experienced trade support analyst working with giants such as the London Stock Exchange, where she speaks to us about the Medici family and other influential families in finance, Charlie Carnes, a blockchain consultant and cryptocurrency expert who speaks about the newest advancements in blockchain and smart contracts, Alexander Kenlock, the leader of a blockchain department at a leading cybersecurity and logistics company who speaks in depth about the history of banking and different types of banks, and finally Arthur Yamayaro, the founder of financial education company, the International School of Finance, who teaches on the world of digital finance and cryptocurrencies and his own experiences as a trader in London. Okay, so when you think finance, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Money, numbers, currency, banking, exchange, anyone else? Okay, great. Most of you guys know JP Morgan and I've chosen um, JP Morgan to kind of talk about today because um, it's kind of one of my favorite kind of I wouldn't say favorite companies, but one of the companies I've kind of done a lot of research with. In fact, Pio um, actually gave me a book in 2019 called The House of Morgan. Um, So for those that don't know, it's actually the seventh largest bank in the world and the biggest in the US. Who who knows what the largest bank in the world is? No, it's not HSBC. It's actually one of, there's six banks before JP Morgan and they're all Chinese, literally all Chinese. Yeah. Um, So JP Morgan was an American financer, a banker. Um, What I like about him actually is because who knows all about the Great Depression in America? Yeah. So he actually led um, and he had a big influence during that time um, and led a lot of companies and successfully yeah, he led a lot of American financial companies um, into like a basic revolution. So if you guys read about him, you know that this is actually one of my favorite kind of stories. I like history. So I like to read behind the history of like financial companies. Okay, greater than Medici family. And I know you guys all know um, about them. Again, um, the Medici family, when you talk about finance, you have to How can you not mention them? Um, They were the most economical, powerful family in history. Um, For those that don't know, actually, they were very known um, for their textile trade um, and then became very powerful um, in their banking, owning the the Medici Bank. I've literally read and watched a lot about the Medici family. They're very interesting, to be fair, although it's a bit, you know, old, but um, very interested. Um, They, for those that don't know, also, they sponsored a lot of art. um, And in their time, they produced a lot of popes. So if you know back in them times, if you had popes, if you produced a lot of popes, you would know that that was kind of a big thing. Okay, next slide, please. General finances, um, so for those that know, will, would know, general finances, personal, um, your personal finances, 
corporate, um, public government, so that's grants, loans, um, the exchequer, so let's say a, com a, a country is given a certain amount of money. Um, so yeah, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, offshore accounts where you live in a country and um, you have another bank account in another country basically. GFI Group, I'll just talk about that and LSEC, um, just a bit of companies where I've worked. Um, GFI Group was a brokerage company um, and that kind of opened my eyes to the side of traders. And what I realized actually when I was working there that a lot of the traders didn't actually go to school, well, uni. So a lot of them would actually leave school and was straight just kind of into that working world. It's very different compared to London Stock Exchange. So there was a lot of guys in GFI. Um, sometimes you'll hear them arguing across the, the room. You know how it is on the trading floor. Um, but it was very interesting. London Stock Exchange, um, very, very corporate. Um, yeah, thank you. Good morning. Hope you're doing very well on this um, cold morning. Today, I'm going to be uh, teaching you about blockchain, in particular, blockchain in logistics. So blockchain, it's very, um, it's quite technical. So I'm going to break it down in the simplest way possible for you guys. Um, so in the simplest terms, blockchain can be described as a data structure that holds transactional records and while ensuring security, transparency and decentralization. You can also think of it, think of it as a chain of records stored in the forms of blocks which are controlled by no single authority. The blockchain was invented by a person or some would say a group of people using the name of Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008 to serve as a public transaction ledger of the cryptocurrency which we know as Bitcoin. The identity of Satoshi Nakamoto remains unknown to date and the blockchain is considered a type of payment route. And then obviously I'm talking about blockchain logistics, so I'll give you guys a brief on what logistics is as well. So logistics is generally the detailed organization and implementation of a complex operation. In a general business sense, logistics is the management of the flow of things between the point of origin and the point of consumption to meet the requirements of customers' corporations. Now, as of 2017, the industry was valued at a staggering 8.1 trillion and it's expected nearly to double that by the double in valuation by 2023. Now, although the payouts can be lucrative, shipping companies and retailers are losing out on a significant percentage of profits due to the inefficient practices, unnecessary middlemen costs, theft, cyber attacks, and food spoilage. Mis uh, mislabeled, misshipped, and stolen cargo alone accounts for at least 50 billion in losses every year. Now, as a company, um, I don't think no one would like to lose 50 billion or, or in losses each year. So what blockchain is meant to do is offer a alternative on how to be able to save money with a more um, simpler technology behind the company that you're running. If we can move to the next slide. So smart contracts. Um, a smart contract is a computer program or a transaction protocol which is intended to automatically execute, control or document legally relevant events and actions according to the terms of a contract or an agreement. 
A smart contract is a self-executing contract with the terms of the agreement between the buyer and seller being directly written into lines of code. The code and the agreements contained exist across a distributed and decentralized blockchain network. So these, these contracts cannot be tampered with, which um, offers a security for companies to be able to use. And um, yeah, so you can't, you can't um, tamper with it. So no one can try any funny business, which will save you money along the way. Because like you said, there's a lot of um, cyber attacks, a lot of fraud within logistics. So this is something that will be, um, which will help it move forward. If we can move to the next slide. So why, why blockchain? But this is um, why blockchain in logistics. Blockchain can help logistics companies more efficient via a public ledger system that records the motions of each shipping container. Armed with data, companies can implement faster routes and eliminate unnecessary steps in the delivery process. Distributed and decentralized ledgers reduce bottlenecks and clerical errors as well. Using smart contracts, retailers no, no longer need brokerages, lawyers, or other third parties to complete these tasks. As you can tell, this saves a lot of money for the company moving forward. Smart contracts enable retailers and logistic companies to enter binding agreements that will immediately dissolve if all agreed upon um, stipulations aren't met. These ledger-based contracts increase transparency and profits while decreasing delivery time and costly errors. The next slide, please. So some facts and figures um, regarding blockchain. So Bitcoin, a money exchange system, pioneered technology and today it has more than 8 million accounts and grew by more than 100% per year since it began. Blockchain can be public like the internet or it can be private like the intranet. In terms of its de development, blockchain is believed to be where the internet was 20 years ago and there, there is significant, significant investment by today's tech giants such as IBM, Microsoft in the blockchain industry. IBM de dedicates 200 million and 1,000 employees to blockchain-powered projects. The average investment in blockchain projects is 1 million. Now, this next fact is, is something that um, actually shocked me itself. It says only 0.5% of the world's population today is using, um, is using blockchain, but 50% or 3.7 billion people use the internet. Now, I actually went on to do some further research and it says that five, only 5% 5 of the world know about um, blockchain. So, um, yeah, 5% know about blockchain, meaning that it's a growing market and anything that you can get in whilst it's early, that's supposed to be the next internet, which I believe it will be, will obviously increase in, well, um, increase in value as it goes forward. Now, the global blockchain market is expected to be worth 20 billion by 2024. And it's around, um, the worth is around 6 billion right now. Now, over the last five years, um, venture capitals have invested more than 1 billion into different blockchain companies. Now, um, before we get onto the last slide, because there's going to be a short video just to um, pictureize what I was um, explaining. One problem that we faced in our logistics company is that we have a lot of paperwork, um, which you might think of something that's very small, but it can also be a big pain. Now, the loss of paperwork or the amount that's used can um, take a lot of time and the people that I say you're dealing with 
are not as, um, what's the word? Um, they're not as well structured as you believe them to be. So you can come across a lot of errors and a lot of problems, and then that'll then eventually evaluate to you losing money. Thank you, everyone. Wow, um, I love the previous presentations that um, I've seen. But I'll be speaking to you today about banking and my thoughts on it. Okay, next slide. Okay, banking. For centuries, banks have been at the bedrock of human life. The almost silent constant in the lives of nearly every first world human being, consciously or subconsciously, governing the socio-economical structures of billions of people. Next slide, please. The history of banking. So before I speak about my thoughts on banking, I have to give you the history of it. The history of banking began with the first prototype banks, which were the merchants of the world, who gave grain loans to farmers and traders who carried goods between cities. This was around 2000 BC in Assyria and India. In ancient Greece and during the Roman Empire, lenders based in temples gave loans while accepting deposits and performing the change of money. Christian knights, called the Knights Templars, in the protection of pilgrims, set up the first European payments network by securely moving money around for royalty and wealthy aristocrats. However, the banking system that we have today is a direct descendant of the banking from the mid Middle Ages initiated by the Medici family types of bank. How many people know that there's more than one type of bank that we see? There's retail banks, commercial banks, investment banks, central banks, credit unions, there's even mutual banks and, um, and, and any other form of banking as well. Community banking, there's loads. Retail banking, also known as consumer banking or personal banking, is, a, is banking that provides financial services to consumers as individuals, not businesses. Retail banking is a way for individual con consumers to manage their money, have access to credit, and deposit their money in a secure manner. Services offered by retail banks include check-ins, checking and savings, accounts, mortgages, personal loans, credit cards, and certificates of deposits. Next slide. Commercial banks. What is a commercial bank? The term commercial bank refers to a financial institution that accepts deposits, makes various loans, and offers basic financial products like certificates of deposits and saving accounts to individuals and small businesses or small to medium-sized businesses. That's the difference between a commercial bank and a retail bank. A commercial bank is where most people do their banking. Um, commercial banks make money by providing and earning interest from loans such as mortgages, auto loans, business loans, and personal loans. Customer deposits provide banks with the capital to make these loans. Next slide. Investment banks. What is an investment bank? An investment bank is a, financial is a financial services company that acts as an intermediary in large and complex financial transactions. An investment bank is usually involved when a startup company prepares for its launch of an initial public offering, an IPO, and when a corporation merges with a competitor. So if any of you have heard of M&As, that's mergers and acquisitions, these are the banks that are involved in them. So the investment banks, the Credit Suisses of the world, the Deutsche Banks, Goldman Sachs, UBS, they get involved in very big, large financial transactions um, and they offer those services. 
Um, it's all, it also has a role as a broker or financial advisor for large institutional clients such as pension funds. Next slide. Central banks. What is a central bank? A central bank is a financial institution given privileged control over the production and distribution of money and credit for a nation or a group of nations in modern economies. The central bank is usually responsible for the formulation of monetary policy and the regulation of member banks. Central banks are inherently non-market-based or even anti-competitive institutions. Although some are nationalized, many central banks are not government agencies and so are often touted as being politically independent. So some people don't actually like central banks. Why? Because although they are for your nation, they're actually privatized companies and that's how they actually came about. So they're not actually government-based, but they're government-backed, as if they were. Um, however, even if a central bank is not legally owned by the government, its privileges are established and protected by law. Next slide. Credit unions. What is a credit union? Pastor Nini. A credit union is a type of financial cooperative that provides traditional banking services ranging in size from small volunteer-only operations to large entities with thousands of participants spanning the country. Credit unions can be formed by large corporations, organizations, and other entities for their employees and members. Now, I'm going to speak to you about the state of banking. Next slide. The state of banking. For half a millennia, banks have worked on the basis of physical distribution. However, for half a century, that model has been challenged to move towards electronic distribution. What the hell does that mean? Physical distribution is basically, think about this like this. It's based on legacy, old, analog type branch systems. Um, but as we're moving into more digital age, they've been forced to move to more digital services. We have finally reached a point where electronic distribution has matured, works, and is proven. Unfortunately, most banks are stuck in the 20th century. Why? I believe that the answer is, as with most things, um, an issue of leadership. Now, the problem with um, banking at the moment is that even though we're moving into a more digitally um, enabled world, you find that there are people that are at the top, the 60 to 70-year-olds that are still holding high positions with inside banks that are what I like to call digital aliens meaning that they've probably um, had to learn about how to use things digitally. However, they, they're not what I like to call a digital native. A digital native is simply somebody that is people like us who grew up with the internet, probably stitched and into, a, into the fabrics of our loins. Digital native. So I think that banking right now is led, being led by people that don't really have a clue about the digital age um, and that they're just growing old. Next slide. The issue. Like I said, banks are being run by digital aliens and with no thought of the digital natives. So what's happening is that they're adding digital channels or they're trying to add digital channels into physical structures. So for example, in the 70s, they added the ATMs. Great, that was awesome. In the 80s, they added the call centers. Thirdly, the internet came in the 1990s and then they added the mobile, um, mobile banking in the last decade. The problem is 
the majority of banks are built on the are built on layers of complexity and legacy. The ATM call centers and internet channels were all built, built as layers of of the cake and created when the physical distribution branch was the foundation. So, for example, if you've ever had your bank bank account locked, for you to get through to somebody, first of all, you're gonna have to. Well, when your bank account locks, the first thing you're gonna have to do is you'll probably put your card in and you'll see that it doesn't work. You'll then probably call up your bank, which is the call center, which then the call center will probably send you right into branch. And then it will be a full circle of you probably doing the same thing again until that thing never gets resolved. Somehow, I've, prob I've been through that pain. Most banks are adding digital as a function, as I've been saying, a project and a channel to their existing structures rather than reinventing their business models. These banks are doomed. Any bank that has not embraced digital as a transformational process, but just as an evolutionary process, will sleepwalk into history. Think of the current traditional banking system management as someone trying to put lipstick on a pig. Why? They're just trying to mask the ugliness of this ugly creature by putting lipstick on it. It's an old English saying. Do you get it? Yeah, makes sense. So... For me, bank, if you're really trying to transform banking, you have to think of it as a transformational process rather than something that is evolutionarily that you can add to an old Medici-style banking system. It has to become digitally enabled in which it's, fit, it's actually stitched into the lines of you waking up and being able to bank from your phone. Normally, rather than having to use old-style going into branches, da, da 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 Think of it like, in fact, I'll use this example, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs understood that he had to change technology as a whole. And if you look at his, branch, um, his branches, you'll see that they're very human-based. They're very interactive. Some people thought that, oh, that his branch system won't ever, it won't work, da 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 and people were writing him off, especially uh, the people at BlackBerry. BlackBerry are no more. It's very interactive. It's very um, human-based and, and extremely, it's like, it's, it's you. You walk in, you see the iPad there, you want to touch it, you want to do certain things with it. Next slide. Okay, so my thoughts, and this is where I'll round up. How should banking be? I believe that banking should be seamless, frictionless, invisible, and stitched in the into the fabric of my day-to-day -day life. I believe that banking should be real time. You should be able to spend, invest, transact, transact, trade, and borrow in time windows identified as relevant to us, not in annualized products um, offered by institutions. The only reason why products were annual was because it was difficult to service them frequently in a physical distribution model with buildings and humans. So the reason why the bank can only issue, out, issue you guys out a loan that's either 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, or 48 months, is because simply they just can't handle the, um, the footfall of people coming in and out. Um, so that's why they can't offer you products that aren't five hours. Whereas for example, if banking was smart, which I'll move on to, if it was smart, you'll be able to, um, they'll be able to offer you loans within a space of five hours borrow this for five hours, we know that you're getting paid due to your normal day-to-day -day spending habits in the next five hours. So borrow this um, to, to pay for whatever you need to pay for and then move on. Smart. I believe banking should be smart. 
I believe it should be predictive. Personalized loans based upon mine data and personalized contextual information. My banking should know that I take the underground every single day. It should know that a season ticket is, would cost me a lot cheaper than, if, than me spending um, day to day. So what it, sh- what it should do, it should, what should it do, sorry? It should give me a personalized loan based upon the data of me using the underground every single day and then offer a small interest, which would save everybody, in my opinion. I believe, finally, that banking should reach the unreachable, reaching the long tail of customers. For example, previously overlooked people like old age people or kids uneducated in money that now can get into financial literacy through apps, through banking, making banking smart again. Thank you. Wow, 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 wow. Powerful. Very powerful. Um, I like all the presentations that I've uh, seen this morning. And, um, I just want to say I've learned a lot this morning. I just want to speak about um, digital finance with you guys. Obviously, a lot of you know that um, you know I've been involved in the cryptocurrency space for many years now. So um, if I'm going to speak about finance, that's um, the one subject that I'm going to focus on. So what I've done today is that... Um, I've actually kind of dumbed it down and not to be rude or anything, but I thought if I'm going to go and speak about cryptocurrency, let me at least like, you know, give them an introduction to what it is, how it works. And so um, what is cryptocurrency? A cryptocurrency is a type of currency which uses digital files as money. Usually the files are created using the same methods as cryptography. Now, cryptography is the science of hiding information. Cryptocurrencies use decentralized control, which means that that they aren't controlled by one person or government. It was created in the wake of 2008, the global financial crisis, as a way for people to control their money themselves without having to rely on companies, banks or governments and their fees and controls. Um, You know, like how Alex was talking about how the banking system is controlled and all the rest of it. So cryptocurrency actually gives you that freedom. Um, non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies are collectively called altcoins because obviously when you know you hear crypto I'm pretty sure most of you guys just think of Bitcoin but there are many other like currencies and those currencies are called altcoins which is short for alternative coins uh, next slide please so different cryptocurrencies um, I've just put three different cryptocurrencies here and I'll explain the reason why I put these three so obviously the main one that everybody knows Bitcoin Bitcoin is a type of cryptocurrency. There are no physical Bitcoins, meaning you cannot actually, it's not like cash, like money. You can't touch it. Um, only balances kept on a public ledger that everyone has transparent access to. And that's the beauty of it. All Bitcoin transa- uh, transactions are verified by a massive amount of computing power. Bitcoins are not issued or backed by any banks or governments. More power to the people. Um, and my second coin that I've chose to speak about is called Ethereum. Ethereum is open access to digital money and data-friendly services for everyone and features smart contract functionality, which is what um, Charlie was explaining to you guys earlier on. It is the second largest cryptocurrency by market capitalization after Bitcoin, and Ethereum is the most actively used blockchain. Now, I just want to speak about the smart contract functionality that um, Charlie spoke about just now. Um, That's what makes Ethereum very popular because um, smart contracts, what it is, is that how can I say it in the most simplest way? Imagine you have a vending machine, yeah? And a vending machine is already set that if somebody puts $1 in the vending machine, it will now release the chocolate or the drink or whatever. 
That's how smart contracts work. Now, that allows companies to never, ever, ever have a breakdown in the way that they're working. So if companies would have a delivery set that, you know, this thing needs to get from here to Folkestone, from Folkestone to, I don't know, Germany. Now, they would have a smart contract set up with um, whatever company that they're working with and their driver is also, everything is already set. It's just a matter of, this has to now happen at this time and this happens at this time and this happens at this time and the computer would recognize that and that's how maybe, you know, um, like the contract is fulfilled and is issued. So you don't need people to be standing at ports with papers anymore to tick if um, Charlie got to the port at this time. No, the computer will just um, will recognize all of that for you because it's already set in your smart contract. Now that's the beauty of um, Ethereum and the Ethereum blockchain. And then I chose a different coin that many of you probably never heard of. It's called Breeze Coin. Now, Breeze is a cryptocurrency focused on real estate and tourism sectors. It serves as the intermediary between the cryptocurrency markets and real estate and tourism. It is also used as the payment method in all Breeze Demar projects. Now, um, I chose Breeze to let you know that, see, cryptocurrency and the whole like digital finance, what it's doing is that it's changing the way that things work in many, many different sectors. So what the Breeze project actually does is that it focuses on, um, let's say, for example, companies that are building hotels, that are building um, like resorts and all sorts of things. Yeah. And at the same time, also focuses on airlines and projects like, you know, um, or, or maybe yachts and um, ferries, how people are going on holiday and things like that. Now, what you'd, you'd think, what's that got to do with cryptocurrency? So now it allows investors to invest into that world by just buying a token. You don't need, you don't need to actually yourself be involved in that um you don't need yourself to be actually be involved in anything to do with tourism or anything to do with real estate and building hotels. You can just simply buy a token on your side and now you trust and you know that the guys behind Breeze are now going to go out there and look for projects and build the hotels themselves. They're going to go out there and uh, go and buy more yachts. They're going to go and expand that world for you. And as you hold that token, that um, they invest the profits that they make from all these things, they're reinvesting it into the coin. And that's how the market cap goes up, the equity and the value of that coin goes up. So it's allowed everybody else to have access to a world that they would normally maybe never had access to. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And that's the beauty of cryptocurrency. Next slide, please. So cryptocurrency pros and cons. So cryptocurrency is transparent. These are the pros. For example, with Bitcoin, there is an open ledger called a blockchain on which all transactions are recorded and monitored. Because of this, once a transaction is completed and recorded on the ledger, it cannot be changed. Transactions are available for verification by anyone at any time. No one person or organization can manipulate it and therein lies the biggest security feature. As you guys know, many of the banks, they manipulate the forex markets, they manipulate a lot of things, but with Bitcoin, there's nothing that allows them to do that. And that's why most of them don't like it as well. And portability. Unlike physical money, large amounts of cryptocurrency can be transported easily without detection. It is possible to carry billions of dollars in Bitcoins in a memory drive on your person, though not advisable. So literally in my pocket or in my phone right now, I could have a billion, do you understand? Like what cryptocurrency is allowed is that, um, imagine trying to carry a billion around. You're going to 
probably have suitcases and all sorts of things. And you know what I'm saying? I say to you, and similar thing, it's also undetected. So you can never tell what I've got in my pocket. Do you understand? Um, you control your money. So since the users of digital currencies are in control of their transactions, this helps in keeping it safe. Transactions are made independent of the identities of the um, of the parties making them. This protects users from identity theft. So a lot of fraud and things like that. So you know how your bank account can get hacked into, people can look in and transfer your money, things like that. Um, what The same thing that uh, cryptocurrency or Bitcoin allows you to be protected and you know your money is safe basically. Now the cons, misunderstood and mistrusted. Digital currencies like Bitcoin are not yet as widely known as they need to be. You know, only 0.5% of the world are using um, blockchain at the minute. So, you know, they're not widely known and there's not, um, and they're neat as they need to be. So because not everyone knows it, and even fewer of them understand how it works, people tend to be mistrustful of digital currency and the number of businesses which accept it as a form of payment are very few. This is a limitation to people who want to use Bitcoins for their day-to-day -day transactions. Companies are also not to blame, however. Adding Bitcoin as a form of payment you accept would first of all require that you educate your staff about the concept. So we've still got a long way to go in educating people how this stuff works and what it's about. Transactions cannot be traced. This feature makes digital currency the perfect tool for criminal transactions. Just like drug dealers and other unscrupulous individuals use cash to avoid detection, transactions, <coughs> uh, transactions made with Bitcoin and others like it are virtually untraceable. This could be a reason for governments to declare Bitcoin transactions illegal in their countries. Now, I'm pretty sure I don't need to explain you know, um, that part. It speaks for itself. Um, it allows people to do illegal activities. So um, that's also a part, a gray area. And subject to market fluctuations, when you want to invest in cryptocurrency, keep in mind that while it can be used to buy and sell, it is also a commodity like oil, which is subject to changing market prices. When investing in cryptocurrency, it's best to look at it as a long-term investment and not let momentary fluctuations in price make you think you've made a bad investment. Um, similar thing because of the volatility volatility of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Um, some people you might buy it today and see it go down and think, "Oh my God, I've lost money." Da 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 da. da. Like it, it's not really like one of those kind of things. It's not you don't you haven't lost money. Um, it's just that the value of the asset you bought has gone down. So you only lose money once you sell it. Like as in you 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 get rid of the asset. Do you understand? So if you have a Bitcoin today, tomorrow morning you will still have one Bitcoin. It's just that the value of that, your one Bitcoin has gone down. You haven't lost anything. Um, next slide, please. So finally, so knowing all of this, the question, the question is, if it's advisable to invest in cryptocurrencies, do the pros really weigh out the risk? I believe it all depends on your intentions. If you want to use digital, digital currency the same way you use regular money for your daily transactions, I recommend not. Not yet anyway, because we've not actually got to that stage. Digital currency has not been adopted enough to be used strictly for transactions. If you intend to invest in it, however, then that's another story entirely. Looking at the growth trends and value of Bitcoin from its inception to date, the value has almost gone up and it looks to continue doing so in the future. Buying a chunk of Bitcoins now to sell at a later time when the value has appreciated satisfactorily looks like a wise decision. Unlike saving regular money that will be decimated in time by inflation, cryptocurrency is looking up, at least in the foreseeable future. Thank you very much.
and we've come to the end of this week's Industry Insights with Pulse Community. Join us every fortnight for a brand new episode with our industry leaders. Share and like if you've enjoyed the episode and remember to follow us on Instagram at Pulse Community London to stay up to date with Pulse Community.